Hello, everybody. It is Tim. It is the Honor Roll 2022 Episode 4. Recording this in March. Technically, this is my February wrap-up. So, we're going to get into it here. I've got my recording sweats on. So, here's the deal. Sometimes when I... I have... I have multiple different types of sweats that I recorded, but I have found that there is one pair of sweats in particular that does not work for recording because they make so much noise. They're like the kind of like the vinyl-y sweats. So I have pure uh, cotton like fabric sweats on now. So they should, uh, you should hear none of my sweatpants while I'm recording this one. I've got my coffee. I've got my Tim Hortons right now. Delicious Canadian, Canadian coffee. I, I, uh, I've had a poochki today, which is essentially, I mean, I, I, the, uh, cannoli one, the cannoli one, I'm not as big a poochie guy. I'm like low on the poochki fans of the Midwest podcast network. I'm pretty low. I think they're, I think they're good. They're just like filled donuts, but the one with the cannoli filling, that's, that's what you want as far as poochkis go. I think, uh, I think that's it. The honor roll. Let me explain how we do things here. I watch five movies and then I pick which ones I really like and then I put them on my honor roll. And my honor roll is a list of movies that I really like and then from the end at the end of the year I will be choosing my top 10 list from that group of films. So we've had a we've gone through three episodes so far. I've got three movies on there. And just a little bit of foreshadowing here because I'm a professional. I'm going to put three movies on from this group of films and one of them especially may be quite controversial but we'll get to that uh for uh in just a second uh first up unicefusa.org help the children in ukraine but uh let's uh let's let's get moving here let's jump right into some silly horror movies let's jump into the silliest of them all texas chainsaw massacre not the texas chainsaw massacre we've moved into fast and furious levels of titling in this series which is what this series deserves uh texas chainsaw massacre after nearly 50 years of hiding leatherface returns to terrorize a group of idealistic young friends who accidentally disrupt his carefully shielded world in a remote texas town Directed by David Blue Garcia, written by Chris Thomas Devlin, Fetty Alvarez, and Rogo, Rodo Saigoyas, uh, starring Sarah Yarkin, Elsie Fisher, and Mark Burnham. I watched all of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies before I watched this one, and it did really nothing to help. I kind of liked the series, though. I was more negative in my head before I revisited it. And it's weird. The It's been said many times by everybody. The timeline is all over the place. What I like about it is there are just so many different types of movies. You've got like a, a, a movie by, made by French extremist filmmakers and you've got movies. Uh, I mean, you've got the original and you've got comedies and you have weird conspiracy 90s movies and it's a it's a crazy crazy series so what i've done here is i'm only going to rank the sequels because honestly nothing has touched the original movie or even come close to it and what i'm going to do here is i'm going to rank them and then i've written some haikus 
for each of these sequels. It'll help help review them and maybe help jog your memory as we go through here. But I've I've written some haikus. I've gone back into my uh, my grade school days to remember how to write haikus. And I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, these may be a little bit off, especially the first one. So let's get started with the number seven sequel. My least favorite sequel here. Texas Chainsaw Massacre of the Next Generation. Oh, but here's the haiku. Rightfully disowned, the worst of the massacres, McConaughey noises. Okay, so I think that last one is five syllables, but I couldn't, I couldn't put his noise with the noise he makes. The uh, noise. He makes a lot of noises in that movie, so I couldn't figure out how many syllables those noises were. Anyway, let's move on to number six. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the beginning. Look out, pedestrians. The series takes a wrong turn, saved by the ending. So there's your haiku there. It has a, it has an incredibly, incredibly mean ending. Does Texas Chainsaw Massacre at the beginning. Number five, Leatherface. That's the one that just came out a couple of years ago, Leatherface. Teenage Leatherface, Bulgaria is not Texas. What's the timeline? There you go. That's your haiku review for Leatherface. 2017, I believe, is Leatherface. Next up, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3D. I am but a man. Midriffs in three dimensions. Oh, Daddario. Yikes, right? Eh, well, what can you do? Uh, next up, this would be number three, my third favorite of the sequels. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the remake. A decent day bait. Excuse me, excuse me. Let me gather myself here. A decent bay make. Say goodbye to Balfour's face. Jeans and white tank top. Yeah, the last, let's go get a little creepy old man. I'm sorry about that. We'll move on, though, to my second favorite sequel, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, Leatherface. Video nostalgia, better trailer than movie, Saw is family. There you go. And my final haiku for my favorite sequel, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. I kind of, I almost go in order for my favorites uh, on these, but Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is my favorite. Here's the haiku for that one. Not for everyone. So quit complaining, brother. Enjoy the hopper. There you go. I didn't write a haiku for the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I'm just going to talk about it. And I'm just going to say right up front, I liked this. Listen, I'm not even going... I'm not really going to defend this as a good movie. It feels cut to hell. It's... It's incredibly slight. It is very silly, both in plot and in character. And it treats a certain returning character, the fran- character to the franchise, I'll say, uh, poorly. I don't know. <laughs> but on the other hand, it's like 77 or 78 minutes long without credits. 82 with credits. So if you want to stick around, it's not much that much longer. It's hilariously mean. It's gory. It's produced by Fede Alvarez, who, of course, directed Don't Breathe and the Evil Dead remake. And he's starting to establish a pattern of movies that are over the top, visually stunning. I think this movie looks great. I've seen some people complain about it. I wonder if they got their settings wrong on their televisions or maybe they're watching on their laptops. Mm-hmm. And also, they also his movies uh, have plots that don't make a lick of sense. Oh, maybe they're watching on their phones too because this looked great on my television. Uh, when this movie, though, it's when it's at its best, it feels like a splatterpunk novel that you find like buried deep in the horror section of a bookstore, maybe even at a flea market. Splatterpunk was a literature movement back in the 80s that was characterized by like really graphic, descriptive scenes of gore and violence in an alignment with the counterculture. And I think that the, I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the new one, kind of fits that description to a T. It's, 
it's meant to provoke both with its gore and it's kind of it's assault on and i'm trying to put this trying to think of how i want to put this without coming across how i don't mean to i will say it's assault on idealistic young people that maybe deep down are a little bit full of shit um this is a nasty nihilistic uh exploitative piece of business here i think that i think fans of the slasher subgenre either have to be okay with or supported of in some cases this subgenre it has a bit of a socially conservative streak, and I can definitely see a reading of that movie here. It's very much on the side of quote-unquote real America and very much not on the side, at times, of the hyper-liberal big city folk. And I'll be honest, I think it's this aspect that has led to some of the more vociferous online reaction to this movie, but that's a that's a separate discussion altogether. I do want to say this though. I find this is this is kind of a slasher movie trope that and something can complain about. I don't even care about it. Like people go, I don't care about these characters. I just want to. I want to. I'm rooting for the bad guy here. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on. What are we doing? Who are we kidding here? But also, while I found these characters annoying, the young kids annoying and full of shit. Like I said, at times, I didn't. I don't think they're bad people. And I think a lot of the movie is about one character's kind of, um, kind of rebirth, renaissance, trying to her atoning for a sin that she commits early on in the movie. And I, I've read a couple of reviews. Uh, I think it was Vern Outlaw Vern, um, who has a very good review, who kind of compared what a certain character does early in the movie to drag me to hell and how this kind of plays out in some ways like a morality tale. So there you go. But that also plays into the socially conservative aspect that I was talking about, which whatever I'm here for the chainsaw massacre part of the title. And Oh boy, does this movie deliver it? It kind of delivers exactly what I want from a late sequel in a franchise, which is just, especially in a franchise like this, which is just pure splatter punk mayhem with a chainsaw. There are some, I think some terrific set pieces here. I think the obvious standout and the one that was featured in the trailer is the scene on the bus. And Oh boy, this is, this is like exactly what I wanted in Jason takes Manhattan with Jason just going buck wild in a subway car. Uh, but we never got that. We get it here and it's amazing. There's I'm, I've been better with staying away from spoilers for movie so I don't want to spoil this too much, but there's a great bit with a self-driving Tesla at the at a certain point in the movie. So I'll leave it at that. On the more negative side of things is Sally Hardesty's, Hardesty's return to the franchise. I won't say much about this due to spoilers, but I think the less said, the better anyway, because she's kind of wasted here, in my opinion. She feels like a victim of this movie getting cut down to a sub 80 minute runtime. And I think that's the trade-off. I guess my problem isn't so much wasting the character because of what happens kind of fits with this movie's kind of worldview and this franchise's worldview. I do think she feels a little bit tacked on and ultimately ends up being a little bit pointless. And I think what uh, another uh, a positive aspect I can argue for is her her appearance does kind of add to the trashy kind of cash-in aspect of it all, as it's tr- obviously trying to piggyback on the return of Laurie to the Halloween movies. So there you go. I, the Sally stuff is a bit of a mixed bag for me. I didn't hate it like some people did. I didn't have that that instant like negative reaction to it, but it also, I could have done without it. Um, 
The honor roll, though, is meant to highlight movies that I think are good, obviously, but they're also a way for me to make my own personal top 10 at the end of the year. And when I get done watching a movie, I ask myself whether or not I think this movie has a chance to make it on my top 10 list at the end of the year, my personal top 10 lists. And I think this thing kind of does. I think this thing does. So screw it. The new Texas Chainsaw Massacre is on the honor roll. I don't care. All right, next up is A Banquet. A Banquet. A widowed mother is radically tested when her teenage daughter insists a supernatural experience has left her body in service to a higher power. Never good. Directed by Ruth Paxton. Written by Justin Bull. Starring Sienna Guillory, Jessica Alexander, Ruby Stokes. A Banquet. This movie is called A Banquet. I don't recall seeing a single banquet in the movie if we're going by a strict definition of what a banquet is. Maybe someone was drinking like a course at some point. It is the banquet beer. Anyway, this is a movie that is a uh, this is a movie that I'm reviewing to get my street cred back after loving Texas Chainsaw Massacre so much. But it's also to highlight my inconsistencies as a reviewer because it's a bunch of things that I normally just harp on and never shut up about. It's slow. It's barely a horror movie at times. And uh, without spoiling too much, it has a not so great ending, but guess what? All those things considered, I still really liked it for whatever reason. I really jived with this one. I am, I'm trying to think of why I like this compared to a lot of the other slow burn horror movies that I haven't like responded well to recently. I think that this movie though, does a good job of a couple of things and a couple of things really worked for me with it. I think it does a good job peeling back the onion is, is that a, I think that's a term. Anyway, it unravels its central mystery slowly, but effectively. And it paces like handing out the breadcrumbs. Well, it doles it out. Well, whether those breadcrumbs lead to like a satisfying conclusion to you, whether those breadcrumbs lead you to a satisfying piece of bread, I guess it's kind of up to you to the individual viewer. I thought the ending was fine. We are, we are all made of uh, stars as it is. Um, I do think it, it, I said, it's not, it's barely a horror movie. I think it does a good job of sprinkling in the horror elements. It doesn't shy away from them. I like the supernatural element. It teases or the, is it, or isn't it supernatural? There is some sort of, or is there some sort of psychological explanation? It all, it worked well enough for me. It kept me thinking. It kept me guessing throughout, there are also a couple of really great moments of body horror as well. The director and interviews Ruth Paxson, she mentions Aronofsky and Lars Van Trier as influences. And I think you can see that here all over the film. Also Cronenberg, of course. I think Paxson is another reason this movie worked well for me, maybe more than some of the more recent art house horror flicks out there. There's a ton of talent here and i it feels like a new voice emerging in a feature film maybe not even necessarily a horror voice but just a voice in general this is another movie too like the last mary saw last thing mary saw which is on shutter now which i wasn't crazy about but it features an attempt at a very long and uncomfortable dinner scene big year so far for long and uncomfortable dinner scenes but this one worked much better for me and it's because of the way ruth paxton films it I think during the during the scene, during the dinner scene, the camera kind of floats around and shoots the scene from behind. And it kind of leads to this sense of unease, almost like we're we aren't supposed to be there, like we're imposing on this family. We're spying on them. And the sound in the scene. Oh, man, it, like it's it's really good. The, the sound mixing design. I'm not really sure. I'm not an expert on this, but it it works really well. What um, 
Paxton and and the sound it makes sure to capture every clang and scrape and the scene, and it adds to another layer of unrest. This is also a movie, a horror movie about the horrors of purposelessness and the the effect that can have on your mental and spiritual health. And that really hit home with me because it's one of the things I like. I'm obsessed over in life because I do very much enjoy purposelessness. I'm a big fan of doing things or watching things that do not matter and do not have any real effect on the world around me. It's great. I recommend it to everyone and anyone. This movie seems to be calling my worldview into question, my worldview that purposelessness purposelessness is great. And I appreciate that. I like my views being challenged and it only strengthens my resolve to do absolutely jack shit. Hunter gatherers were the happiest humans uh, to ever inhabit the earth. More than likely. I don't know. I guess I do. There has been a ruling on that, but that's because they only had to work like 15 or 20 hours a week to survive. And they were just doing stuff to like survive the rest of the time on earth. They just spent like just fucking around and like, and they didn't even have cool stuff like TVs with multiple logins for streaming services. So I guess I'm, I guess what I'm saying is I'm a, I'm a middle minimalist. I just, you give me a TV and a bunch of logins and I'm set and I take great comfort in knowing that I am on the right track for all of these reasons, but not for the lack of a banquet, but uh, maybe the dinner scene. The only thing about it is the banquet. There are two dinner scenes. So it's, that would be banquets, but they could re also be referring to a character that is like getting fed on in the movie with that supernatural thing that ties in or a scene where they are feeding them. So maybe that's the banquet. So anyway, I'm putting a banquet on the honor roll. I'm getting my, my indie street cred back with this one. Next up is Hellbender, which is on Shudder. Now, Hellbender, a lonely teen, discovers her family's ties to witchcraft. Directed by John Adams, Zelda Adams, Toby Poser. Written by John Adams, Zelda Adams, and Toby Poser. This is the, their uh, collective called the Adams Family, which, yeah, 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 yeah. I'll get into it later. Uh, starring those three as well, and also Lulu Adams. So there you go. She's just an actress in this one. This one is kind of a fun backstory. It's a it's a do-it-yourself style horror movie by the filmmaking family, the Adams family. This is a family from upstate New York. They're a collaborative effort, and it's made up of parents John and Toby and their children, Zelda and Lulu. They all share responsibilities, directing, writing, shooting, editing, composing. Composing, I think, is particularly important in Hellbender as it features music by the mother and the daughter's band, which I've seen referred to as a punk band. And I don't know if I agree with that. I think they're more of like a 90s female alt rock outfit, which makes sense because the mother would be a Gen X parent. And we'll touch on that a little bit more later. But the band to me seems less like punk rock or Riot Girl and more something like like Mazzy Star or uh, L7 or like Liz Fair, stuff like that. I think where the punk rock comparison works, though, and I think what a lot of people mean by it when they say it is in the that DIY, that do-it-yourself aspect. This is the Adam Family's sixth movie together. It's the first one I have seen, though. I really need to track down their 2019 movie. Uh, it's also on Shudder. It's called The Deeper You Dig. I've heard really good things about it, and I really, really liked Hellbender. Uh, do-it-yourself or no-budget horror movies have a long history, and they have left a, an indelible mark on the horror genre. I think I think the, the aesthetic fits well with the genre due to its transgressive nature. And I also think, when I think about the first, like, the big DIY horror movies, I'm talking about stuff like Less House on the Left, Evil Dead, 
Texas Chainsaw Massacre. These are all movies with that independent spirit that push boundaries. And all of those movies have an, a unique voice behind them. I'm bringing up those examples not because I would put Hellbender on the same level. I would not. But I think it captures some of the same energy as the best low-budget horror movies. I think that unique voice aspect of the Adams Family really separates it from the pack of a lot of current independent horror. I talked a little bit on the last episode, and I've mentioned it a little bit in my review for a banquet as well, with a lot of the current crop of Shutter exclusives, especially, and this is a Shutter exclusive. Those slow burn movies that burn slow, so so slow that I would I would probably call them no burn. And a lot of them tend to be period pieces as well. And when I hit play on Hellbender, and I saw that we were back in the olden times, and we were hanging a witch in the prologue, I turned into like I think it's the San Andreas meme where the guy goes, "Ah oh, shit, here we go again." But even the prologue is a bit of a shock to the system as it sets the tone pretty quick. The witch we are seeing hung ends up being too hard to kill. Its leg starts twitching, squirming. A character unloads a gun into it multiple times, unable to kill the witch before another character attempts to stab it. The witch screams, flies up to the air while on fire, and then boom, we smash cut to the Hellbender title screen, complete with three sixes in place of the E's. There we go. That's how you do it. And the mother and daughter garage band playing a song with the lyrics, women cut women, repeating over and over. So it's great. And honestly, it worked better for me because I have been so exhausted with the current crop of those independent slow burn period piece horror movies that we've been getting lately, especially on Shudder. It it almost, the prologue almost works like a mission statement as it pulls the rug out from under you. It's in your face. It's funny. It acknowledges the history, but at the same time, it says, we're going to tell you that story, we're going to tell you the story, but we're going to tell our story and we're going to do it in our own voice. And I think that's what I found so refreshing about Hellbender. A lot of independent horror movies like this rely, especially these DIY ones, rely on recreating horror movies that they really like and end up feeling overly imitative. But this goes its own way. And while I don't think it's perfect, I think even the film's shaggier elements like the special effects and some of the acting actually work in its favor due to its kind of punk rock attitude. I've been taking it kind of easy on spoilers here lately, and I'm going to continue to do so. I'm going to spoil one movie later on, but the movie does become a mix of a coming of age movie and a movie about the relationship between a mother and her daughter. It never forgets it's a horror movie, though, and I know I harp on that, but I do think it's important. The movie works also, though, as a commentary on kind of like helicopter parenting and a defense of the Gen X parenting style. Now, I'm not a parent, but I have access to the Internet so I could read articles on the kind of stereotypical Gen X X style of parenting. And it's portrayed in articles and research as stuff as having raised kind of Gen Z to be, be a bit more autonomous and a bit with a bit looser reins. And I kind of, I hate, I don't like the Gen X, Gen Z, millennial boomer stuff, whatever. Because like I mentioned earlier, everybody's different. But I think there's an interesting generational read here with the Gen X, Generation X parents kind of shaped by crisis, like these characters are. And now while there's a lot of Gen X parents that have used their kind of societal disillusionment as a way to encourage kids to be more independent and encourage competition. The mother in Hellbender uses it as a reason to kind of shelter her daughter. 
She's with her every step of the way. She's always hovering as she discovers herself, encouraging her interests along. But she's also she's also the lead guitarist in the band with her, for example. And without spoiling too much, it does not go as planned. So there you go. It is that is kind of an interesting way to to look at things. So I am putting Hellbender as well on the honor roll. We're three four three so far. Well, it's not perfect. It shouldn't be. It has a visual crispness, though, a punk rock DIY-ness, and a focus on what makes it unique that overcomes the flaws that it has. A focus on what makes it unique, I should say, that overcomes the flaws that it has. Hellbender is on the honor roll. All right. Next up, H.P. Lovecraft's Monster Portal, also known as The Offering. You can't find it on IMDb as H.P. Lovecraft's Monster Portal. You have to either search Monster Portal or The Offering. A cult is about to waken H.P. Lovecraft's most feared creature. Uh-oh. Directed by Matthew B.C. Written by Matthew B.C. That's like, not like B, like it's like before Christ. Um, it's a story by Scott Jeffrey. Story by Mario Van, not even going to attempt to pronounce that last. Chiapeski, Chiapuski. Starring C.N. Altman, Louis James, and Judy Cherniak. The Offering, H.P. Lovecraft's Monster Portal. So I'll be honest, I was up against it this week. I just needed to get the five movies. So this was free on Tubi, and it was said it was from 2022, so I went for it. And I got what I paid for, mostly. There is a monster portal in this. There are some monsters in it, but not a ton, mostly just one. There is uh, some demon and human sex. There's a demon and human sex scene towards the end. So that's always a nice surprise. The monsters are pretty cheesy looking. But it's not like I was disappointed in them. I got about the level of quality I was expecting. What I was disappointed in with Monster Portal, though, is this is like a it's mostly a relationship drama between two couples staying at the home of a man who recently we get a lot of. Yeah, like relationship back and forth. (laughs) Sucked. (laughs) So there's also a relationship drama between uh, the recently passed guy and the housekeeper of his home. So not just the living are caught up in this mess. The monster portal in the story doesn't even show up until like an hour into it. And this is not based on a specific Lovecraft story, by the way, it's more inspired by his work. So there you go. This got me thinking though, like what else can we slap old HP Lovecraft's name on to make some money here? That's what we're all about. Making money, right? H.P. Lovecraft, of course, is an American writer of weird horror fiction, probably best known as the creator of Cthulhu. But do you know what H.P. stands for? I'll wait for you to answer. Okay, it stands for Howard Phillips. So when I hear a name like that, the first thing that pops into my mind, because I'm old and I remember this hotel chain, they might still be around, but I think of the hotel chain Howard Johnson's. So let's slap that name on a chain of reasonably priced, conveniently located near the nation's airports, hotels, and startup Howard Phillips Hotels by H.P. Lovecraft. There you go. You can stay there. Maybe uh, maybe each door is, each each hotel door is like a portal to the other side of it. Proceeding to a, a world of comfort. H.P. Lovecraft was apparently afraid of the dark as a child. That's pretty common. But this is a fact I found on like mental floss. One of those mental floss. I do my research here. I go on old mental floss. Apparently his grandfather, Whipple, old Whipple Lovecraft. Not a lot of kids named Whipple these days. It's unfortunate. 
But old Whipple made HP walk through the house with no lights on to help Howard Phillips face his fears. This is very Fear Factory. Or there was this old show on Sci-Fi Network. Willie and I loved this show called Total Blackout, where contestants would have to complete like these physical challenges in complete darkness. So we are in the streaming age and Peacock desperately needs content. We all do. So let's bring it back. HP Lovecraft's Total Blackout on Peacock. Oh, and we can, uh, Jaleel White, Urkel, was the host. So we can bring him back because Lovecraft would absolutely hate that. If you know anything about Lovecraft. And if you don't, you can Google him because uh, he has a cat and his, he's a piece of shit. Uh, Lovecraft, though, was a big time cat guy. The cat wasn't a piece of shit. I should clarify Lovecraft was, but he was also a big time cat guy. And here's what he wrote in an essay called Cats and Dogs. He wrote, the cat is such a perfect symbol of beauty and superiority that it seems scarcely possible for any true esthete and civilized cynic to do other than worship it weird guy but he really liked cats so yeah i guess uh so let's create a fun place in honor of hp's love for cats let's create a fun place for your cat to drop a deuce and market hp lovecraft's portal of poop maybe we'll we'll shape the it's a litter box but we'll shape it like cthulhu or something i don't know and finally hp lovecraft was also a real pain in the ass for magazine editors it seems he had a year long battle in the letters section with a writer named Fred Jackson. I guess he thought Fred was like a shitty writer or something. I don't know. Lovecraft though. He seemed like a real reply guy. Like he's the person who lives in your mentions on Twitter or whatever. So we're going to slap his name on a social media app that will make blocking easier. And we're going to come up with and market HP Lovecraft's block portal, an app that will allow you to weed out people that are annoying nerds like Lovecraft. So there you go. HP Lovecraft's monster portal. It's not on the outer all. It's not very good. All right. Finally, no exit. This is on Hulu now. This was, I believe this was a Fox Searchlight movie that kind of, when the merger, the sale, whatever, with Disney and Hulu, it got ended up getting dumped on Hulu. I don't know for pandemic reasons or what, but I think it works well. It's a, it's it's up there now. I think it works well as kind of a Hulu streaming debut. Honestly, I've seen people complain that this got dumped on Hulu. Like, and then I I read a review that this person was like, I won't name names here, but he's a little bit. He gets a little bit riled up sometimes, but he's just like, I can't believe stuff like this deserves to be seen in the theater while superhero movies are dominating the cinema plex, blah, blah, blah. People are concerned with the next. <laughs> and I say, here, nobody would go see no exit in the theater. Anyway, what are we doing here? And people, the people that would see it are just people like me who are just going to wait for Hulu. Anyway, I'm sorry. Apologies to the four theaters that would have shown this movie and the 20 people that would have saw it. no exit. I'm going to put this out there. No exit. You could, you can watch it at home. You won't be missing anything. Not seeing this in the theater. You, and then you can go see the Batman if you want to. And I won't judge you. No exit though. During a blizzard and stranded at an isolated highway rest stop in the mountains, a college student discovers a kidnapped child in a hidden car belonging to one of the people inside. Directed by Damian Power, written by Andrew Barrar, Gabriel Ferrari, Taylor Adams, starring Havana Rose Liu, Danny Ramirez, David Reistall, also Dale Dickens, and uh, um, 
uh, Dennis Haysbert, Dale Dickey, not D- Dale Dickon, sorry, and Dennis Haysbert. Let's do this. No exit. Because I think this is a good movie to do it with. Let's do a plot point breakdown. And I saved this one for last because this is where we'll get spoilery. We did this last month with C for Me, which is a similar movie to No Exit. It's out for rent now, but C for Me and No Exit are both small, isolated, character-based thrillers. And I think both of them are examples of well-structured films. And I do think that while No Exit is an example of a well-structured movie, it's also an example of a movie that makes a decision late in the game that hampers its theme and it gives the internal character story that it's trying to tell. It hurts it. And we'll get into that a little bit later. I will give my quick non-spoiler review before digging into the plot now. This is a tough one. I like structure. I've talked about that many times and I liked a lot of this movie. The performances are mostly strong. I think it does a good job of doling out the clues as the mystery unfolds and it throws a couple of neat, if a bit silly twists in there along the way. I do think though, if you're going to buy into this movie's premise that all these people are end up stranded in the same place anyway, you are probably okay with anything that happens after. So I... I think at least you should be if you're going to buy, if you're going to jump through the hoops for the premise. But this is a story about addiction, though, and more specifically, the main character struggle with overcoming their addiction. And this movie and maybe even the book it's based on, I don't know, features a moment late in the film that almost ruined the movie for me. And not just because of some sort of moral objection to it, although there is that, too but because it feels like a complete misunderstanding of people's struggles with addiction. And it leads to the movie feeling a little bit phony and made by people who don't get it. Anyway, let's get into the five plot points here to kind of show what I'm talking about and big spoiler warning from here on out for No Exit. Once again, I'm pulling these from the scriptlab.com. I think they're a useful tool in understanding structure and pacing. So let's start with the first big one, the inciting incident. This is the incident that will create the main tension in the story moving forward. And in No Exit, this movie, this is Darby discovering the kidnapped girl in the van outside of the visitor center. We've been introduced to Darby at this point. We know that she's an addict who has escaped rehab. We have also met the rest of our cast of characters at the visitor center. And now we need to start moving the plot forward. And so it's time to introduce the kidnapped girl who will be driving that plot moving forward. Also, I like to bring up the 17 page rule or the 17 minute rule. And this happens around 20 minutes into the movie. So there you go. Once again, it's not a hard or fast rule that your inciting incident has to happen 17 minutes or pages into your script or movie, but it's a way to get things moving and not wasting too much time with introductions. Plot two, excuse me, plot point two is the lock-in. This is where our protagonist, in this case, Darby, is locked into the predicament that is central to the story. And in No Exit, this is when Darby goes into the van and promises to Jay, the kidnapped girl, that she is going to save her. So there we go. Now our protagonist is tied to the main conflict in a way where there is no turning back. And it also marks the end of act one and propels us into act two. The first culmination is the next plot point, plot point three. And this is the second highest hurdle the character has to clear. I'll say this is going, this is the scene in the woods outside of the visitor center where Darby has to escape from the two kidnappers and get back inside of the visitor center. This is mainly an external conflict. Darby is just in full on survival mode. Now the combination of the external and internal conflicts will come later. And that is the lowest point and the highest hurdle for the character to clear. And that of course is plot point four, the main culmination. 
This is the end of the second act, and it brings our main tension to a close. Also creates a new tension going into act three. And this is the moment when Darby, who has just lost her mother, which has been revealed to her via text, and she's also been stapled to the wall. And she's also been forced to reveal where the keys she hid earlier in the movie are. What she does is she takes a bump of cocaine so that she can then like kind of numb the pain or psych herself up or get herself high to pull the nail out of her hand and take on the attackers. This, I like this in a structure sense because it's a combination of those internal and external conflicts that we've been talking about, but it also serves as the character's low point as she gives into her addiction and snorts cocaine, which is her, what she's addicted to. This also though is the biggest issue I have with the movie in a story about a main character who is working on overcoming their addiction The idea of an addict taking one last hit is like a huge problem for me. It's also a misunderstanding, I think, of how cocaine works. I'm not an expert. Cocaine experts, please let me know if I'm wrong. But the idea here is that she needs the bump of cocaine to gain strength or numb the pain enough to pull the nail out. But how fast does cocaine work? It's pretty quick and no exit. It's like, it's pretty much simultaneous. She snorts it and then pulls it out. It's like, this is where the movie lost me, this plot point. So... For, for those reasons, for a couple of reasons, the final plot point, and then we will get out of here, is the third act twist, and this is an unexpected turn of events in the final act, and it's the last true test of the hero. And in No Exit, I will say this is when the cop arrives and is taken out by the kidnappers, leaving Darby to go it alone. This moment kind of keeps the audience on their toes and throws one last hurdle at the main character. So there you go. No Exit is a decent direct-to-streaming level thriller. A lot of these things remind me of direct-to-video or even TV movies now. But it, And I know this was supposed to, supposed to be released in theaters. I think it actually works better at home. But it features it also features an incredibly questionable moment that keeps it off the honor roll. So there we go. No Exit and Monster Portal are not on the honor roll. The other three movies I covered, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, A Banquet, and Hellbender, all made it. So let's recap the month of February right now. I am up to getting my handy dandy. Let me get a drink of this ice cold Tim Hortons coffee. Here we go. Not good. All right. I have watched 21 movies so far this year. Six of them have made the honor roll. See for me, Scream, Boris Karloff, The Man Behind the Monster, available on Shutter Now, a documentary. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, A Banquet, and Hellbender. I'm pretty happy with this. Some variety on this so far. And six movies for January and February, normally considered dump months. I think that's pretty good. And I haven't even seen the Foo Fighters horror movie yet. Slasher Search. We didn't have any Slasher Search movies this month. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I'm not putting on Slasher Slasher Search. Slasher Search is meant to find new slashers for me. And I'm familiar with Leatherface's work. But... There we go. Um, I mentioned, yeah, all the places you can find us. Check us out. If you want these a little bit earlier, patreon.com backslash Midwest Podnet. You can get bonus episodes there. We've got these. We've got the game nerds kicking out all sorts of awesome stuff as well. Willie and I drop our tiny tears. We've been joined by Nikki quite a bit recently. It's been a lot of fun. So, and I will continue to get these out as we move into March and we will find out what March brings for us. I've, I have not kept a close eye on March to be 100% honest with you. So anyway, thank you everybody 
for listening seriously and stay safe out there.